0: Today, liturgically, is the second Sunday in Epiphany, which is the season in the church when we celebrate after Christmas the presence of God's light to us, a light that we are to discern in having an epiphany of our own, be able to see the presence of Christ among us, not just in church, but in the everyday, ordinary ways of life. Today's passage comes to us in an everyday, ordinary wedding way of life in the second chapter of John's Gospel, verses 1 through 11. May God reveal to us God's way and will in our lives as we hear this text. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they, will, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. He was the butler. So they took it, and when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew... The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. John said Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Anybody that works with weddings in the church, pastors and organists, musicians, uh, the wedding director, uh, the sexton, uh, learn quickly that weddings end up being a sign for how the marriage will go. Sometimes they are wonderful, lovely affairs, worship services full of joy and celebration, The bride and the bride's mother are both cooperative, and the couple seem to be a good fit. They want the service to be more about God than meeting whatever dream or vision they may have composed while reading the recent wedding magazines. Their choice for music is tastefully sacred, and they appreciate Andy, Mary Wren, our wedding director, Michael Lane, our sexton, and even my involvement. Most times these weddings, it turns out, are for those members in our church who have a deep love for Riverside, respect our worship guidelines, and have a balanced sense of what a wedding ceremony is meant to be, a worship service where Christ is present. Now and then, however, a wedding uh, is held that is worthy of an episode in Bridezilla, I remember a wedding in Atlanta for a young couple who started visiting our church there, it turns out, looking for a church to be married in. Since we had a rule that only members and relatives of members could be married, less for extraordinary circumstances in our church, they figured out they needed to join. Now, you can usually tell the difference between couples who want to join the church so that they will have a place to worship to start their marriage in after their wedding and those who are looking for a place to have their wedding in. There's just something deep about them, something more committed, a different sense of responsibility or sincerity. But this particular couple flummoxed me. I didn't see it. They seemed sincere. They showed up for Sunday school four or five times. Uh, But then when we started doing the premarital counseling, which I require uh, two or three times with each couple, an hour and a half, each one, when we started that work, they were both resistant to the counseling part, and all she wanted to do was talk about the details of the wedding itself. It turns out wanting to ask for special circumstances so that she would not have to follow the wedding manual exactly. Turned out that the wedding was a huge social affair with nine bridesmaids and groomsmen, two four-year-old flower girls and a five-year-old ring bearer. Both sets of parents were divorced, each had remarried, and neither couple was on good terms with the other, and I felt like I was refereeing an emotional uh, wrestling match through the whole process. It was clear her mother wanted to be in charge of everything while her father was ordered to stay quiet and to just write the checks, which turned him into a completely passive-aggressive personality type. And near the end, the bride and the mother were sniping and screaming at each other and the groom, learning quickly from his soon-to-be father-in-law kept his mouth shut too. It was a disaster. At the wedding itself, during the rehearsal, half the party was disrespectful or disinterested. On the wedding day, almost half the party showed up drunk, including the groom and the groom's best man, who happened to be the groom's father. They obviously thought that this was just another fraternity social event. So later I was not surprised to learn that the couple had separated, only surprised by how quickly. Two weeks after the honeymoon, the bride took off, went to a bar, met some guy there and went home with him before they even got the proofs of their wedding pictures back. Which is now why every smart wedding photographer is to be paid up front. All of us who do weddings in the church learn that how the wedding goes so seemingly goes the marriage. Weddings are a sign that point to the marriage that follows. Maybe that's why Mary, Jesus' mother, is so anxious about the wedding party running out of wine in the story I read this morning. In those days, weddings were town affairs Everyone in the town, also mostly related to everyone else, was invited to the celebration, which oftentimes lasted seven days. Part of the invitation means that if you are a guest, you come and bear and bring your own wine. Remember, wine was the drink of choice because water was too easily contaminated. It was fermented wine, although not probably as Powerfully fermented as today's wine. Mary is agitated and comes over to Jesus and says to him, They have no wine. Apparently, Jesus and his disciples who had been invited had not taken seriously the social custom to bring wine as uh, guests, and so they were eating and drinking like the best of them but had not contributed. When Mary said to him they had no wine, it sounds like a good Jewish mother saying in a couch comment with hidden innuendo, So, you're going out with that girl? They have no wine implies it's all your fault. Now, do something about it. Even so, we're surprised by Jesus' apparently rude response. Woman what does that have to do with you and me? That's how it's usually read, at least. But actually, it's not that rude or outlandish a response. Jesus always talked to the women as woman. That's how he addressed every single one of them, even his mother at the cross. Woman. Plus, the nuance of the text in Hebrew and Greek doesn't uh, reveal to us in English or at least the English doesn't reveal the nuance. Jesus was really saying, woman, what does this have to do with us? Which is just like him saying, mother, this is really not our concern. Now I'll admit on the surface, it might look like Jesus is just trying to avoid the responsibility and gloss over this nuptial predicament which he contributed to. However, the Gospel of John seldom works on the surface. Instead, it is more like a tapestry that looks simple on the front side, but when you turn it over, you see all the threads woven in complicated ways, crossing and crisscrossing each other. It's a lot more complicated than it looks from the front. And in John's Gospel, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Underneath almost every single word and sentence lies the thread of deeper meaning that symbolically points to theological truth, a truth that John wants us to get. This wedding, which seems to be any normal wedding in Cana, is in fact anything but. Instead, it is symbolic of the cosmic wedding Supper, When all will be gathered in the presence of God as the church, called to be the bride of Christ, stands at the heavenly altar with Christ, the divine bridegroom. Jesus is what this is about. And the culmination of all things is about the cosmic wedding. Which is why in Revelation it proclaims, "Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's us. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, pure and bright. And understanding this now follows everything in John's story, and it takes on deeper significance Each word is now a symbol for something else. Each event points to something greater than itself. That's why Jesus follows up his response with, Mother, what does this have to do with us? With, my hour has not come. What's he talking about? When in John's gospel, Jesus utters these words, my hour has not come or my hour has come, Twenty-six times Jesus says it in John's Gospel. In almost every instance, Jesus is pointing to the hour on the cross and the moment of his resurrection when he is taken back to be with God, his Father. This is what it means when Jesus says, My hour, the part when he is revealed for all the world to see in his unblemished love and unbelievable forgiveness and grace. Apparently Mary was used to such symbolic language from Jesus, and so she backs off from him and tells all the waiters, just do whatever he says. The story says that there were six stone jars. They were giant jars, not baptismal jars. They were jars used for the rite of Jewish washing for purification. They held 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And if you've ever been to a temple or an Islamic mosque, you know that there often is a, a fountain and a wash basin before the door that you wash your hands and your arms in and your feet before you enter in order that you may go through the ritual of purification as you begin to worship. These are the stone jars that were standing there. and And so Jesus... "'orders the waiters to take the jars and to take them to the well "'and fill them up with water to the brim,' he says, "'and then to draw out a cupful and take it to the chief butler.'" And they did, and when the chief butler tasted the water, he discovered that it was the best wine he had ever sipped. He called the bridegroom over and complimented him for keeping the best wine for last.'" And then John ends this story with this saying, What Jesus did at Cana in Galilee marked the beginning of his signs. Thus he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. If every wedding is a sign for what follows, this one is a doozy. On the surface it looks like Jesus is a miracle worker who has the power to turn Anything he wants into anything we want, like turning water into wine. And for many of us who like to keep things on the surface, this is often our hope. Jesus will be for us a miracle worker. Whenever we lack anything, face hardship and distress, we can just go to Jesus and ask him to turn this into wine, to take tragedy and turn it into comedy. But if we're willing to go a little deeper, which is Mark's intent, and see that this story is all about how Jesus takes the tired, bland, religious, watered-down, everyday rites of the church, just blithely going through baptism and indelicately going through communion the way we just so commonly do, or the watered-down blind lives each of us lives and turns them into the powerful wine-like presence of Christ, then maybe we're getting the meaning of this. Now, I admit not everyone can see this epiphany, but sometimes everyone benefits from it, like the butler who had no idea where the wine came from But he was, in some way, connected, spiritually connected even. He loved life and the joys in it. And he couldn't point to the source. Aware and appreciative of deeper things in life, he didn't know to whom to give credit. But the disciples did. Jesus says, they saw and believed And the word believed in this text means they not only intellectualized the belief, they had faith in a way that was obedient. And in that obedience, they followed Christ. They saw the glory of Christ. His passion revealed. They were able to see this whole wedding story as a sign for what followed in his crucifixion and resurrection. Seeing and believing They were able to receive with abundance life that Jesus offers, the one who can take the mundane, everyday, sometimes watered-down days we live, and turn them into the best of the best, infused with joy and life and love. The best marriages I know are infused with that presence that presence that intoxicates us with hope, even when faced with hardship. In this story, Jesus' presence not only turns the water into wine, but it turns it into the best wine, and not just a bottle or two, but six stone jars of twenty gallons apiece, an overabundance of grace and love, which in the Old Testament is the sign of the coming kingdom of God, Pointing to the earth, it yields its fruit 10,000-fold. Each vine shall have 10,000 branches, each branch 10,000 clusters, each cluster 10,000 grapes, and each grape about 120 gallons of wine, which by my calculation is 6 times 20. Oh, yeah, this story is about something much larger than what they're drinking. There was a wedding in Cana, just another wedding, Yet all the signs are there for the infusion of God's kingdom. On the third day, it says, pointing to his resurrection, this wedding banquet, it says, pointing to his reunion with God and the church, the wine pointing to the cup of the new covenant and the forgiveness of sins, this hour and glory pointing to Jesus' moment on the cross of ultimate grace and love. An infinite abundance for everyone to drink, if we want to be transformed. I remember when I was in seminary, one of my classmates, who was known to be a trickster, had an incredibly bright idea. On the day in our worship class, we were to go through the process of baptizing a baby doll and saying the words of the Eucharist at the table. Each one of us would start at the font and then go down to the table going through the uh, liturgical uh, ritual and the words that were necessary. Uh, my friend went to a store and bought for himself a small vial of dark red food coloring, which he hid in the palm of his hand. And so when he went up and went through the words of baptism, he squeezed a couple of drops into the baptismal font. And then when he went down and performed the rites with the chalice, which was just water in the chalice because it's just the practical way to do it, he squeezed a couple of drops in the chalice and then he sat down. The next student that went up looked into the font and was completely blown away and called for the professor. The professor walked up, looked in, and immediately got it. He went down and looked in the chalice, and it too had been turned from water into wine, apparently. It turns out that my friend had now created for himself a legend he was known throughout seminary as the one who actually turned water into wine. It turns out, of course, that each of us is given that charge. This is what it means to be a Christian. At baptism, when we take the water and I dribble it over James's head, we don't just sit there, we stand up and commit to be catalysts that helps turn the waters of chaos into the wine of Christ's passionate presence. Are we not called to see and to be the presence of Christ in every bland, mundane event, to point to the hope that we will all be gathered together one day in the wedding supper of the Lamb? Are we not people who claim that being in relationship with Christ, we find the abundance of life, the abundance of life so full that it is, as the Bible says, filling over and spilling out, so abundant that everyone is invited to the wedding feast and there is plenty to go around for everyone. This weekend, as we celebrate the life of Martin Luther King, who was, of course, broken like the rest of us, with clay feet like the rest of us. We celebrate, really, his deep faith and the Christ presence that was real in his life and his hope for all God's children and how he turned an otherwise watered-down minister's life into a passionate, prophetic, hope-filled preacher. His life was intoxicated by this hope and he drank from the love and grace of God in such a way that it intoxicated a whole world movement, a whole world transformation. And with Jesus' blood washed through him in his baptism and Jesus' blood spilled by him in his death that fateful day on April the 4th, 1968, as he stood on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, we have been given a sign. That blood, which is the blood of Christ, cannot be washed away by all the water from the Mississippi River that ever was, is, or ever shall be. For you see, once Jesus has turned water into wine, it cannot be turned back. Let us pray. O God, take our lives and transform us into the wine-filled presence of Christ, turning each day into a wedding feast of joy and celebration. Amen. Let us bring forth the lives...